Welcome at Youth at Heart, a podcast series made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. There are more young people in the world than ever before. In Africa, people under 35 even make up three quarters of the population. Youth are particularly affected by the crisis of the pandemic and often the ones with the best ideas about what the post-pandemic world should look like. In this podcast series, two young people, one from the Netherlands and one from a country around the world, share a conversation on a theme they are both passionate about. Together, we explore how they can inspire each other and how they can inspire you. My name is Mert Kumru, and I'm the Dutch UN Youth Representative for Human Rights and Security. And in today's podcast, we'll talk about women's representation in politics. We have two very inspiring ladies as guests, Ibi Joke Faburode from Nigeria, the founder of Elect Her, and Devika Partiman from the Netherlands, founder of Vote for a Woman or Stem op a Frau. A warm welcome to the both of you and many thanks for joining us today. Um, so when we speak about po- women in politics in general, what about the current situation in both of your countries right now? Um, as you know, it's the biggest economy in Africa. It has the youngest youth population. So in the in the scale of things, even globally, Nigeria does matter. But then, you know, according to the Inter-Parliamentary Union also, um, Nigeria has the lowest representation of women across parliaments in Africa. And this has dire implications on like policies. Um, so the truth is that we have a long way to go. Um, and for so many Nigeria, you know, I've been disappointed for so long because, I mean, mm. in the country have over 200 million people, you have less than five women, so less than 5% people making your policy. So you can imagine how poor the policy outcomes are. And that's why you have child marriage, you know, one of the highest in Africa. So those things are very real. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I also do recognize that in the private sector, we're seeing more and more women get elevated, most of the boardroom, you know, and I think some of those things, you know, we could then leverage on them to sort of advocate across other sectors as well. How would you describe the current situation of the Netherlands in terms of women representation in parliament? It's getting better. I okay. think um, when you look at the last couple of years, um, the representation in parliament is now uh, 31% women yeah. and the rest of them uh, are men. And in all political organs in the Netherlands, uh, local politics as well, it's about around that same percentage, yeah. like three in ten uh, politicians so are female. Yeah, less than a third. And um, this is actually, it's, it's a small decline of what it's been uh, ar- about ten years before, but it's never been equal. And uh, we're not going to get there the next election either. But what you do see is that... Um, it's become way more of a topic that's being talked about and more and more political parties, especially on the left and center, are putting in a lot more effort, at least in parliament, to uh, gain more diverse candidate lists. So um, not only on the base of gender, but a broader diversity yeah. of people. Last year was such um, a global feat for women. We had Kamala Harris, the first black and Asian um, American woman, yeah. and the first vice president in Nigeria here we had our own very first Okonjo-Wella so I feel like there's so much to celebrate um, in Estonia at the moment you have for the first time in history the female the first female president and the first female vice president um, and the first female prime minister so I feel like there is a critical shift globally and you know it's almost like you can't ignore this moment right now and so it's that you jump off the wagon 
or you're not even relevant in modern times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's indeed very interesting. And I mean, we all still live in the world, uh, in like the pandemic world. So uh, we still know what all the consequences are of COVID-19. Um, in, in that same sphere of influence, we saw that the relationship between uh, national female leaders and their effectiveness in handling the COVID-19 pandemic has received a lot of media attention. And I was wondering, what is your take on this? And are female leaders, you think, more effective in leading the fight against the pandemic? This is fact-based, and it's just simply because the numbers and the figures show it. Um, so you see, um, some of the countries that pushed more of... Um, so they pushed socioeconomic decisions. They, it was about the welfare of the people. And I always say something, the people who make the economy, they're the consumers, right? Any way you look at it. So if you're thinking about just profit or loss and you're looking at you know, your ledger and all that, you're going to make a huge mistake forgetting that all policy decisions, all critical decisions must be people-centric. Women are naturalized. Women have that instinct. And that's what you saw in countries like New Zealand, you know, in all the countries that had progressive policies. What then happens is they thought about the people. They thought about the implication as well. They thought about the costs of making that, just that solely economic decision. And when you look at the trends in America right now, the cost of their discussion of the decision has been so high. So it's not from a sentimental place where we say women led or are leading the fight against COVID better than men. It's fact-based and evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this maybe also is a great uh, moment to go into a more in-depth um, fact-checking about the situation of women leaders in countries. For example, when we look at international trends and numbers, uh, according to the, to UN Women, uh, we see that um, women serve as heads of state of government in only 21 countries out of uh, 195 or four out of my head. I'm not sure, uh, and 119 countries never had a female leader to begin with so uh that's that's those are shocking statistics to hear i was wondering in what way are female politicians currently being portrayed in the netherlands in in the media i automatically think about a lyric from a dutch artist sophie straat who actually said an angry woman is called hysterical but an angry man is passionate yeah actually research actually backs that up because angry women we see as emotional and emotional we see as not reliable while angry men um and again this is research Mm -hmm. so it doesn't count for everybody but for a lot of us it does angry men we see as um um, like riled up and uh, that we see as reliable because then there must be good reason Mm. and in politics you have to be angry yeah because you want to change things, right? So for female politicians, that's a huge problem. Yeah, and it's all they have to, yeah. you know, be angry and smile. And it's all about something. the frame that the media puts you into as well. So Ibijoke, how is that in in Nigeria? Are angry women also portrayed as hysterical, for example? Oh, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's worse because it's almost like you know everything against you is against you as a woman. Um, it's almost like as a woman, you're not supposed to talk. And then so when you talk, it's almost like a taboo. And then when you're like a strong woman in the context to put it, and then you're seen as someone who is who's being quite provocative in a way. Um, and that really affects the mentality of people about leadership as well. Subconsciously, you know, um, women are sidelined from like major news stories. Um, 
maybe just about 16 or 17% of them were covered in 2015 news. And even at that, when you see the female politicians come on TV, the focus on them is more personal as opposed to mm-hmm. their objective, their competence, their abilities. And I think this makes women shy away from the media because it's almost like they question everything about them, you know, when they want to run for office. Meanwhile, like I said, the man is passionate, is bold, but for the woman, it's almost like, oh, where is her husband? She's abandoning at home. Where is her children? What kind of mother? So all of these things, you know, so the media has, I'd say they're one of the biggest instruments that, like I said, so that can really shape democracy. They're so important. And so when the, the, the image of the woman you portray is weak, is, is, is angry, subconsciously that feeds into the decisions of other people. Mm-hmm. And so I feel it's, it's such a complex topic that a lot of people don't talk about, yet it's highly relevant. I'm very interested in who is your personal inspiration. And we've asked the both of you to bring a piece of audio. And uh, I'm going to look to my uh, technician over here. Could we please first hear uh, the audio piece of uh, Devika? And Devika, I will ask you afterwards to elaborate on who it is, what it is, and why you've chosen this selection. All right. If we showed that feminism was a vote winner, Our thinking was that the mainstream parties would have to steal our policies in order to neutralize our impact, in order to protect the votes they were scared of losing to us. And this suited us perfectly because we never wanted power just for power's sake. We want to achieve gender equality and put ourselves out of business. That's what we're trying to do. In one election, we delivered a copy of our manifesto to every other political party wrapped in a beautiful bow with a note saying, steal me. We don't have a copyright on our ideas. We want people to take our ideas and implement our ideas. Inspiration. Yeah. Devika, who is so this? So is, this is Mando Reed. Um, she's a black British woman. Uh, she lives in London and she started uh, among a group of people, uh, the British Women's Equality Party. They are a political party um, and um, they tried to get into parliament the last election and she is talking actually about that. We have shown other British political parties that did get seats that this, you know, the feminist threat that people care about women's equality and the plans that the political party had. So they influenced without having to do the actual day-to-day work in <laughs> politics from as an activist organization, they influenced the political agenda. That's, that's, I think that's, that's great. I'm now looking to um, Ibi Joke's source of inspiration and we'll ask you the same question after the fragment. In the shadows of Nigeria blows an air hot with purpose. Some know. Others move beyond the depths to the surface, and we know. Fighting to protect the rights of women is a calling. We birth nations built to stand the test of falling, our hips spread with room for building, for harvest. We are made from deep, dark earth, raised by the sun, bones structured like the cosmos, we birth it all. Women by the thousands, powerful and ready. The Beokuta Women's Union, Fumilayo Ransom Kuti, brought to life her calling to make a way for women and girls in education and the defense of women's rights, a mission determined and steady, fighting to improve the quality of life, a birthright embedded in the soil of the land for which she stood, taking a stand. Wow. Ibujoke, 
Could you please uh, tell us who this was and why you picked this? I mean, every time I listen to this, it just really tears me up and just helps me, you know, just appreciate, you know, some of the women who really paved the way for people like us decades after. And it's even more painful that history tried to erase this woman. Her name is Fumilayo Ransom Kuti. She was a strong, fierce, bold woman who stood amongst the men. She was so powerful that when she entered the room filled with men, they were all just like, oh, she's here again, you know. She, <laughs> yes, she spoke without regret. She fought all her life, you know. Um, she was so big on child's education, um, adult education. Um, she, she really helps us understand history better, but also the fact that we had strong women. We had women that were involved in politics and socioeconomic decisions in the past. However, what happened? So people try to erase that history from us. So I remember when I listened to this, it was this great sense of pride that I felt. And every time I feel like I'm struggling with elector, every time I kind of feel like, what's the purpose? Nothing is going to change. Or every time someone tells me I'm wasting my time, you know, I like to listen to this and it gives me like such great sense of inspiration. Yeah, no, I fully understand that. And it's it's very good to hear also that we need to make the connection of uh, history and what's already have been done in the past uh, when it comes to equal representation of women so that's that's great and well when we talk about the past we also need to talk about uh, future generations and youth participation is at the heart of dutch development policies it is an essential part of our youth at heart strategy that we've launched last year with this strategy, we aim to specifically work on improving prospects for young people by investing in education and work. What are, from your own point of view, the most effective ways in which the Netherlands should invest in young people in Nigeria? Education, because we have one of the biggest youth populations. So what you're seeing right now, there's a lot of brain drain going away from Nigeria where they can learn, um, you know, about this educational system, about some key um, key systems in the Netherlands, and then they can, you know, replicate and share, you know, all those things as well. Because I think, like, most times for foreign policy, it's, on, it's very important for you to understand the local context before you can formulate it. And so the youth are unemployed, the youth are restless, they're very brilliant. However, they don't have a job, they don't have the right mentorship. So all that is important. The Netherlands, for example, could work with the government, could work with the third sector, could work with the private sector in Nigeria or civil society organizations to see how they could work with them to really strengthen diaspora um, engagement. That's that's very interesting in, in, indeed. And um, Devika, I, will, I was wondering then, what would be your main message to uh, to young people about representation of women in politics? And to be a little bit more specific, um, to to young girls who are currently uh, m maybe politically engaged or not yet, what will be your message? <laughs> well, I think the message would be to uh, never make doubt uh, into a no. What you see... Um, in a lot of different career perspectives and choices in life is that women and girls, um, we are, maybe from what we are taught or from what we see in media, is that there's less opportunity for us and that maybe we are not as much eligible for certain positions or that we will experience, for example, more hate mm -hmm. um, in certain positions. But when you have doubts, 
even when um, those doubts are completely, you know, uh, logical and don't make it a don't make it a no, make it um, something that you are going to look into at least. And the same goes for politics. When you have political interest or interest in society and you have doubts on whether you want to become politically active, for example, just go out there and explore. What can current international political leaders do to improve the situation? What do you want to do for the first 100 days? And you're like, I'm going to do these, this and that. Um, It's listening to the people. When you listen to the people and you connect with the problems, you can create genuine solutions about it. And so when you listen to the people and you realize that certain people are going through a very peculiar problem, then you're able to widen your cabinet, you're able to get more people to, a more inclusive cabinet that can work with you, you know, to make progressive decisions and policies. So I feel that it's just, being, it's just caring more. What can you learn from each other and what will be the best tips and best practices uh, that you can share? How can we amplify each other? I mean, you constantly have to remind yourself, as you said, to care, not just about yourself or your own country, but also about a wider context. I cannot, um, for example, if I want to broaden what Vote for a Woman does and make it have an impact internationally, um, you have to start all over again, really. So sure, you can take good practices and just sort of go to another country or another place or another group of people and say, well, this is my great idea and it works. You can't copy But that paste doesn't it. Yeah. mean it works there. Yeah. So um, we can share practices, but yeah. we, I think what we have to do mostly is just share in context. Yeah. We're going to finish off with a final question that we're going to ask all of the guests that are going to come. And that question is, um, what does meaningful youth participation mean to you? I think it's the the exact opposite of, of what you would call tokenism. Yeah. Um, for example, could, in could our mentor program, we have is? yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, tokenism means that you are just there for shows, basically, yeah. because they want to attract a woman or a young person or whatever, but you don't have an actual impact on yeah. the organization. And for example, we have a twelve-year-old girl in our mentor program. Her name is Iman. Um, what I find really interesting in her, she is sort of on a roll. Like she won this prize in in her hometown recently as like a, a promising a young uh, young person and. Uh, she's invited a lot into grown-up organizations. And uh, what she t- said about this um, is that she is very much annoyed by invitations that are by organizations who just want to, you know, have a one-time program yeah. and then not involve kids any further. And I think that's your answer. Like, when you want to uh, have meaningful participation of kids and youth... Um, you have to give them as much uh, power and as much as a say as your other people in whatever group you're in have. You can't possibly come up with a policy when you, a youth-centric policy when the youths are not involved. So from a youth participation is being genuinely um, honest about wanting to involve you in critical areas that concern their livelihood um, and everything that has to do with you know the existence in society. And that means that bringing them onto the tables with, you know, as partners, asking for the opinion and suggestions, um, ensuring that, you know, um, you are accountable to them as well. Or this, they take ownership of things. So it's just, I have a young team as well. And I realized that they work better when they take ownership. But when you include them, then they become open to you. So it's almost like the, what you say, 
um, there's such a lot of negotiation with the youth. So it's a very complex but exciting thing, really. But at the end of the day, my summary is bring them to the table and have a discussion with them. Yeah, Bring them to the table indeed. And I would like to thank you both for joining us today at this semi-virtual table. Uh, let's hope that this will be uh, something that's going to continue in the future as well. And I would like to thank you both for being here today. So thank you, Bijoke. Thank you, Devika. Thank you so much. And also thank you, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for making sure that this is possible and i'd like to thank you all and to our dear listeners uh please uh share like and <laughs> spread this spread the word about this wonderful podcast thank you thanks